Speed up with podcast speed up. Want to read Rationally Speaking and not just listen to it? Come to our website where we're posting complete transcripts of every episode. That's rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. Also, just a note about this episode. We had some recording difficulties, so the audio for our guest is unfortunately lower quality than usual. Sorry about that. We'll fix it next time. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Julia Galef, and with us today is our guest, David Rudman. David is an economist. He's been a fellow at the Center for Global Development, a senior economic advisor at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, and currently serves as senior economic advisor to the Open Philanthropy Project. Um, David is also the author of the book, Due Diligence, An Impertinent Inquiry into Microfinance. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. David, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So microfinance has been uh, one of the approaches to helping poor people in developing countries that the international community of economists and philanthropists uh, has has probably been most excited about over the last few decades. Um, David, can you uh, just give us the background for those uh, listeners who haven't heard of it? What is microfinance and why were people so excited about it? Uh, gosh, okay. So microfinance. <laughs> two sentences or less. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, microfinance is uh, about providing uh, financial services, be it loans or savings accounts or uh, insurance or ways to transfer money from one person to another to very poor people. And if you're providing financial services to people who don't have much money, then it goes stands to reason that the service, the uh, transactions are going to be very small. They'll be measured in you know, tens of dollars rather than hundreds or thousands. And so that's where the word micro comes from. The uh, initial excitement in our era uh, began in the late 1970s, coming out of some uh, pilot projects providing loans to poor people, most famously in Bangladesh. Uh, Muhammad Yunus, who would win a Nobel Prize about 30 years later for his work, discovered that he could make loans of a few dollars to very poor people in the village just outside the university where he was teaching, and they would pay back. And it seemed to help them in part because a lot of them were essentially, you know, in a kind of slavery to the uh, local moneylenders. And he was able to, to lend them at much, lend to them at much lower rates, and saw himself as, saw himself in some ways as, as liberating them. Uh, and then he became a wonder, a very effective promoter of this idea, both within the country, so that he could scale it up to thousands and then millions of people, uh, but also internationally. And over time, he and I think others discovered ways to talk about this idea, what was being called microcredit. Although I don't think Eunice ever called it that, not for a long time. Uh, but ways to talk about it that were, were very compelling for people. It was about, uh, a lot of times the loans went to women, so he could talk about empowering women. Uh, it was about... Uh, you know, giving people a hand rather than a handout, to use an old cliche, uh, helping people help themselves rather than just 
deciding for them what they needed. I can see, I can see how this would have appeal across the political spectrum, right? There's there's something in there for the liberals and for the conservatives alike. Exactly right. It's about uh, self-direction and you know pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, which appeals to the right, but it's also about empowering women, which appealed to the left. And so this really gained a huge... And, and so the uh, appealing way of talking about it, combined with the fact that it really was growing extraordinarily rapidly, especially in Bangladesh, people were using the service voluntarily, uh, made it a very compelling story starting in the 1980s. And since then... Have the winds shifted, and and if so, how? Yes, they, they really have shifted a lot. I think, especially since about uh, well, since the financial crisis, in a way, uh, which which had effects on microfinance. Uh, a few things have happened since about two thousand eight, two thousand nine. One is that uh, researchers finally got around to doing randomized studies of the impact of microfinance and, and microcredit in particular. And I, I bet you've talked a lot about randomized trials on, on this show. It has come uh, up, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the first, the preliminary results, you know, looking out to uh, 18 to 24 months after people started taking microloans, did not find any impact on poverty. This contradicted earlier non-randomized studies that had found impact, at least the ones that were most cited did. So that was one headwind. Then uh, there started it became apparent that there were bubbles in microcredit in a few countries, in Morocco and Nicaragua, a few others. And these began to pop, in part because of the financial crisis uh, and, and the economic slowdowns that occurred. And suddenly realized people realized that, you know, just as we can get to, that just as the um, credit markets can, you know, uh, overshoot in, in wealthy countries, they can even with microcredit. It's not immune to this problem. And so then people began to realize that there's such a thing as too much enthusiasm for microcredits. Mm-hmm. And then I think perhaps the most, uh, the most difficult uh, development was in India, where uh, one made the, the leading microlender, SKS, went public, turning its founders into millionaires. And that really began to run rub a lot of people the wrong way. And at the same time, there began to be stories of women committing suicide because of inability to repay loans from the same funders. And so politicians sensed this, and and also the news media picked up on this. And there came a day in October 2010 where, in the state of Andhra Pradesh in India, which is the leading state for microcredit, uh, the state government essentially shut the industry down overnight, citing these uh, suicides. And it just generated a huge amount of negative publicity. And I think that the whole movement has not been the same since. Can you give some context for this phenomenon of, of women borrowers committing suicide by explaining what happens if a woman can't pay back her loan or, or what kinds of leverage do the lenders, uh, the microcredit institutions have on their borrowers? Yeah. So microcredit has often been presented as something that is designed uh, in order to design is done the way it is done in order to help people. And I don't mean to be too cynical about this. One of the most well-known features of microcredit as it was done in Bangladesh and India is it was done in groups. Groups of five women would come together and they would be responsible for each other's loans. And this was often talked about in terms of providing, you know, help, creating a, a kind of social capital or an empowering way for women outside the home to find support as they were working through their financial problems and figuring out how to use their loans. 
Uh, but the reality is that things like the group mechanism were used because they made microcredits uh, more efficient by increasing repayment rates. If you go into a meeting with five women uh, and you don't have the money on hand for your weekly payment because these meetings are weekly, mm-hmm. that's a source of shame. And so that creates increases pressure uh, on you to somehow or other get the money ready for each weekly meeting. And then if everybody comes to the meeting with the money in hand, then the loan officer can very quickly collect all the money and move on to the next village, which keeps costs down for the microlender and keeps makes the whole thing practical. But there is a sort of drive in traditional microcredit towards using social pressure on rather poor people in order to make or pay back and keep the whole thing running efficiently. And that can take a lot of forms. One is the risk of public shame meeting. My officer coming and knocking on your door and rather loudly asking you to repay uh, in within earshot of neighbors. Mm. And... So there is a potentially coercive element to this, which is not, of course, going to be in, you know, uh, it's not going to be nearly as visible mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to the likes of us, of thousands, you know, thousands of miles away. But it is part of how microcredit has often worked. And while I do take the reports of suicide in India five years ago with a grain of salt, because I do know that they were promoted by politicians with their own agenda, I do think that the general sense that there was a coercive out is is on target. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this has to be borne in mind. And the real challenge is to figure out how to provide these financial services relatively affordably for people mm-hmm. without letting the system get out of control in this way. So I first heard about microfinance maybe 15 years ago, something like that, and was certainly excited about it. Um, and then I... Uh, in the last maybe five or six years, started hearing this trickle of reports that new, uh, more rigorous studies were finding a lack of effect on on the metrics that we presumably care about, like poverty. Um, and I was surprised because it seemed so uh, just so so like such a natural story that offering this service to poor people would make them better off. Um, and so maybe you could just help me understand what is what are the narratives behind the data from these RCTs saying that there's no effect? Is it is the lack of effect just positive stories being balanced out by these negative stories of people ending up in debt and worse off for it? Or is there something else going on? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, the traditional narrative has been about uh, uh, people getting these loans, usually women. Uh, and starting some kind of micro business, mm-hmm. which could be buying a cow, you know, just some kind of investment that can be, that can rather quickly yield income to pay back the loan. Um, there are a few things going on. One is that, uh, poor people are using these loans probably a lot of the time to kind of juggle their finances. Um, how to put this? Uh, for, first of all, some, something that all of you read, if you're interested in the subject at all, is a fantastic book called Portfolios of the Poor, mm-hmm. which does a wonderful job of bringing, uh, using data, but also bringing living texture to how poor people actually manage money and how they, uh, how financial services that we're talking about can fit into what they're doing. Uh, but sometimes people are using loans not to invest, 
at least not in the in, a, in something that will produce raise their income within eighteen months, but to discipline themselves into spending money on the things that are actually important. I mean, you and I face temptations to buy potato chips or, or whatever else that we we, we we may spend our money on that we know are really not the top priorities, but we can afford it. When you're poor uh, and your income is predictable and, and volatile, you don't have a salary, uh, navigating the, your, the financial challenges that you face every day and every month uh, is, is is much more difficult. Um, you, if you want to buy tea today, that may not mean not quite enough money to feed your children tomorrow. You know, it's really uh, very tight. Uh, and particularly, and especially women may have less power within their families and their social context to say no when people ask them ask them to borrow money. Loans can be a way for people to discipline them themselves. Uh, against their own worst impulses and against pressure from uh, those around them mm-hmm. to spend money on the less important thing. So if I know I really want to spend money on keeping my daughter in school, uh, and typically in a poor, poor country, you have to pay for that. But the knowledge that I have those weekly payments to make will make it easier for me to say no if my husband comes to me asking for money, and also harder for me to spend money on things that are less important. So this is a matter Economics is that a lot of times what financial services are really for is not investment, but ways of tricking ourselves and those around us so that we can, in a funny way, exercise more control mm-hmm. over, over what we do with our money by limiting the autonomy of our future self. Right. That's a rather long answer. Um, now, it's possible, I, I certainly hope it's the case, that the woman who uses a loan to invest in her daughter's education will... Uh, Either raise, ultimately raise her own income or raise her daughter's income, but that could be a generator and won't show up in these studies. Well, so that actually brings me to a question I had uh, while reading the studies of, of microfinance's effects, which is, and I think you addressed this in your book as well, um, are we sure that poverty is in fact the right metric? Like, could, you know, the, the fact that microfinance is so popular should, I would think, be some indication that it's giving poor people something that's valuable to them. Um, and so maybe it's not poverty. Maybe it's income smoothing, or or maybe it's um, you know increased autonomy uh, in terms of decision making power in their family, or something like that. Uh, and and maybe some of these things are harder to measure uh, in, in a randomized controlled trial. But I guess I'm wondering how much do you think we should really update from the fact that these RCTs showed no effect on poverty in terms of our you know the credence that we put in the idea that microfinance is worth investing in. Well, I do think that poverty is an important measure. Uh, if we had found, if the studies had found that microcredit was reliably reducing uh, income, I'm sorry, increasing income or increasing household spending, that would have been fantastic. It was absolutely worth checking for, both because it's important in itself uh, to uh, reducing poverty is, of course, important in itself, but also because many claims on behalf of microcredit were grounded in this idea that it was reducing poverty. So absolutely worth checking. And the fact that we're not finding much impact on poverty over uh, three to f- even three, now even five years, I think, in at least one study, does uh, should, should shape, uh, should uh, lead some people to revise their expectations of microcredit. But of course, uh, poverty is not the only uh, thing worth measuring, the only outcome we care about. You suggested that we should could also look at uh, consumption smoothing. 
Uh, I don't think I've seen much evidence that microcredit is helping people smooth their spending. I've seen a little bit of evidence that, that microsaving has done that, um, but maybe not quite quite enough to be absolutely sure. So a savings account? Yes. Okay. Well, a small savings account. Um, one study I have in mind, uh, people working, people who already had businesses they were selling in the market in Kenya offered them small savings accounts. Mm-hmm. And it found that when the accounts were offered to women, if I recall correctly, um, that there was a uh, consumption smoothing impact. Mm-hmm. So that's jargon term for, you know, having, being more often being able to feed your, your kids. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I think about microfinance a little bit differently. There's, I, I think it's absolutely worth running the randomized trials on the variables that we can measure over a few years, which is about what we've got in microfinance. Um, for, for randomized trials of micro. But I also am very influenced by some sort of broader um, conceptions of the role of financial services in the lives of the poor. As I've already sort of hinted, uh, I mentioned this book, Portfolios of the Poor. Um, what that book helped me understand is that, first of all, we all need financial services. Uh, in, in my own book, I run, I perform an exercise fairly early on where I list all the financial services that I use. Mm-hmm. I've got, you know, checking accounts and life insurance and all these things. And then I ask myself, if I had to give up all of these but one, what would it be? And I beg myself, uh, to allow, <laughs> to meet myself to keep two. And mm-hmm. the two that I think are most valuable are health insurance and life insurance because those protect my family. I have kids from the financial consequences of the worst happening to me, mm-hmm. my dying or becoming very ill. And so what that helped me realize is that financial services above all are about reducing risk. And poor people actually live lives that are much more risky than my own um, because their incomes typically are not as predictable because they don't have health insurance to cover, you know, uh, a broken leg can be a, an economic catastrophe for a family mm-hmm. of, man, of manual laborers. And so they actually need financial services more than you and I do. And uh, to suggest that this is just kind of a luxury, I think, just misun- fundamentally misunderstands how they have, they have to live. So in that context, savings, uh, credit, insurance, even money transfers, all help them solve what is sort of a fundamental problem, which is, the need to gather lumps of money for important uh, spending purposes, whether it be to buy a cow or pay school fees or cover a health bill when the husband gets sick. And uh, because you can either borrow when your husband gets sick to pay the bills or you can take drawdown savings or maybe you're really lucky and you have insurance or your son in the city can send you money. All these things help solve this fundamental problem. And I just think that that is so important that... Uh, it is worth continuing in this, with this movement, this enterprise, to try to bring financial services to poor people in a way that is safe for them. But why wouldn't those functions show up in the data? Like, presumably, if you can take out a loan to cover yourself when your husband is recovering from a broken leg and can't bring in money, why wouldn't your income you know, be higher in that world than in the counterfactual world where you couldn't take out the loan? Uh, great question, um, and I don't know if I even have a full answer to it. <laughs> uh, is this, is it just about priors 
where like our priors that this should be the case are so strong that even a few RCTs, you know, showing a negative result aren't enough to overwhelm it? Um, I, I guess so. I mean, um, I guess what I'm, I'm talking about here is primarily reducing risk. So that is about reducing uh, variance of income uh, and, and, and consumption. And that is harder to measure because the data get noisier. Uh, so it can be harder to find the difference between control and treatment groups when you start looking at these uh, measures of the second moment, the second order effects. Um, and there will also be people who, there will be negative stories, people who get in trouble because they borrow too much. Uh, I do feel, the, the way I adjust my priors in because of these ra- randomized studies that don't show any clear impact on average poverty over a few years, is I think that the case for subsidy uh, to, to microcredit goes down. I think it, it's, uh, we should be thinking more in terms of making a self, self-sustaining industry. Mm. Um, we can give startup funds, but we shouldn't be investing massive resources in this. Why is that? Um, I'm sorry, I guess I wasn't very clear. When I say we, I mean as donors and philanthropists. Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, that like, if this is a valuable service to the poor, then, you know, it's something that should be able to sustain itself as an industry. Um, I think it will need to sustain itself as an industry uh, because it's hard for me to justify pouring large amounts of aid or philanthropy dollars into it when there are other things that we are more sure will help in the short term. Mm-hmm. But if we can help launch a financially self-sufficient savings bank for the poor, that to me seems like a good thing if we're talking about startup funding. Mm -hmm. All right. While we're on the subject of RCTs, one last question. Um, One apparent tension or, or like something that could be interpreted as a tension in your book, I think, is that on the one hand, you're more rigorous in your evaluation of the data and the studies than the average um, person looking at microfinance. And yet you also express kind of a skepticism about how much we really can learn from randomized controlled trials. Um, And I don't, the next thing I'm going to say isn't your own view, but just my view that I'm adding to the point. Um, When I look at economics, um, there are studies run, for example, behavioral economics, People run randomized controlled trials to to study how people behave in certain situations. And this is in one sense more rigorous than observational data. But there's this additional source of uncertainty that you have now when you look at whether or not you can really generalize the results from this artificially created, um, you know, experiment in a lab to real world behavior. And that sort of uncertain generalizability is less of an issue, I think, in RCTs that are done with actual micro-lending institutions and actual countries with actual poor people. Um, But there's still some element of artificiality where, you know, there's only certain institutions that will agree to participate, and the way that you set up the randomization is sort of artificial. Um, So, you know, they're not lending to the same kind of people that they would if you weren't randomizing or something like that. So uh, my question after this long-winded introduction is, um, to what extent do you think there's a problem trying to generalize uh, from these RCTs to how microlending actually works? Hmm. Okay, so you, you raised two issues there. Um, one is to use the technical term about external validity. Like, right. okay, we've got a study that tells us the impact in one setting, 
how how easily can we generalize to other settings? And you certainly can raise some questions about the uh, the studies that have been done of of micro credit and also micro savings. So you might say that, in other words, the uh, the, the sample the, the set of microfinance institutions who are willing to cooperate with scientists wanting to run randomized trials is itself a very non-random, non-representative set. Some probably lots of organizations would just never consider randomly withholding their services from certain poor people. They would consider that unethical. So we're working with a non-representative group of, of microfinance institutions. We there may be a bias towards looking at countries where microfinance is growing very rapidly because typically the way these are done is they, uh, the studies are, uh, the, the researchers work with a microfinance institution that is growing and is, because it's growing and can only grow so fast, it's willing to randomize, you know, which neighborhoods it goes into first. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly ways you can criticize these studies. That said, we now have, uh, five, maybe more, studies of the impact of microcredit in quite a diversity of contexts, uh, rural Mongolia, urban India, um, uh, Bosnia. So, and, and they're generally telling about the same story. And mm. so I, I think this is actually a pretty good example of where when you've got enough, enough of these randomized trials, you can start to generalize with reasonable confidence. Right. Really now, so, but you're right, even, even though I, I'm pretty rigorous in looking at what the, uh, the studies say and how much we can believe, um, uh, I don't think that they are the final word on the, uh, broad question of whether microfinance works. Which is one piece. Partly is because there is this generalizability concern you just raised. I think a bigger thing is, is a bigger limitation is that they can only track over a few years. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't expect, you know, as I said, I can imagine that the, some of the impact would be generational. If, if a couple can manage their finances better, um, then that may ultimately accrue to the benefit of their children and may not show up for a long time. So, uh, and, and there's, and there's always noise in the data and limitations and what we can measure. You know, you, uh, I, I write about in the book, uh, try to, try to get people to visualize what it's like to have one of these surveyors working for a randomized study implementer come to your door and start asking lots of questions. You know, this person may, may be visibly from a different, uh, class than you, have a different accent, uh, maybe asking you very personal questions about how much you spend, or asking you questions that, uh, you can't remember the answer to. Like if I asked you how much you spent on milk last week, would you know? But that's the kind of question that's in the survey. And these questions can go on for a long time. There can be hundreds of them. And people, when, when you, when you're, when life is tight for you, you are much more apt, I think, at least in a situation, situation like that where you're, you're engaging with a stranger, you're thinking very sharply about what's in this for you. And so you can imagine people guessing what answers the, the surveyor wants, surveyor wants to hear, whether or not those are the truth. So there's all sorts of, um, you know, noise in the data. That doesn't bias the results necessarily, but, well, it can bias them towards zero. Mm -hmm. So I, I just see them as one input to a broader analysis of the impact. Mm. You briefly alluded to um, other th interventions that we should have more confidence in than microfinance in terms of um, 
raising people out of poverty, at least in the short term. I'm wondering, first, what you were referring to, and second, whether that view is in conflict with, for example, William Easterly's claim that we just we just don't know what helps poor people in developing countries and we should stop pretending that we do, basically. Yeah, well, I, I work now for uh, GiveWell, uh, which is probably familiar to a lot of your listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Actually, Holden was one of our earlier guests a few years ago. Yeah, so th- this is a job I, I've just taken since February, after long after I had finished my work on microfinance. And part of what GiveWell does is really try to find evidence-based, uh, try to find charities that really are making a difference uh, with a strong evidence base to back up that claim. And so uh, they make recommendations, or I should say we, we make recommendations on some very specific interventions, like um, particular organizations that are um, distributing bed nets or um, engaging in deworming, these kinds of things. And we, those recommendations are made both on a very careful analysis of the effectiveness of the actual organization and on a review of the academic literature of checking whether the the, uh, interventions actually do work. And almost always there are randomized studies behind that. So I'm fairly confident that there are things that you can do with your money right now that will save lives. They won't make Nigeria into the United States, but they can make a difference in the short run with more reliability than would uh, an investment, say, in microfinance. Um, now, I should say that doesn't, I'm not saying you should only give your money to things where, where, where we have a very high degree of certainty of, of a short-term impact. Part of what GiveWell is now doing is uh, looking at um, investments uh, that could, um, philanthropic investments, that are much more risky, like uh, trying to support organizations that are that will influence uh, criminal justice law in the United States on the idea that there are too many people in prison. That's a venture that completely failed. It seems like a good bet. Uh, so my point is, there certainly is a place for doing philanthropy and foreign aid where there's less certainty of outcome. But if you want some things that are relatively proven, I think we have them. What do you think is the most promising sort of structural intervention that might help developing countries develop? Or is there just nothing you would put any confidence in right now? Oh, golly. <laughs> I don't think I've ever made a guest say, oh, golly, before. this is a first, rationally speaking. Uh, well, really, the biggest thing has to be uh, serious policy in wealthy countries to reduce carbon emissions. So the answer would be a carbon tax. This would be uh, a tax on the consumption of fossil fuels um, levied in proportion to their carbon dioxide producing carbon dioxide producing potential uh, across all wealthy nations, with a commitment to raising that tax every year for the next few decades. Um, and that's, I, I'm assuming that that's not to uh, help raise developing countries out of poverty, but to prevent even worse outcomes on those countries from the effects of climate change decades into the future? Absolutely. And also, based on the idea that we can't expect poor countries to start uh, reducing carbon emissions until we in the wealthy world have, have already begun to do so in a serious way. David, one other question I wanted to ask you is, you lay out this interesting taxonomy in your book, Due Diligence, of three different ways of thinking about development or economic development, um, and reducing poverty is only one of those three. Could you uh, just 
talk a little bit about what these other two ways of thinking about development are and uh, maybe what they imply about how, like, what we should do? Sure. Uh, I, I should say that I see reducing poverty pretty much as the long-term goal, mm-hmm. but uh, sometimes you have to look for other mm, desirable things as intermediate steps. Uh, so w- when I was starting to untra- you know, understand microfinance, reading a lot, talking to people about what they thought it did well and did poorly, uh, I had I needed to organize what I was hearing because I was hearing different ways of thinking about microfinance. And I realized that most of what I was hearing could be fit under one of three categories. Uh, and these amounted to different claims about, uh, or different conceptions of what, it, different definitions of the word works, as in, does microfinance work? And, and they also corresponded to different definitions of the word development, at least in English. So the first one was the one that was most <coughs> famously associated with, with microfinance, which is development as poverty reduction. And within the microfinance world, this corresponds to the claim that microcredit in particular is known to reduce poverty among the borrowers. And so given that uh, claim, you know, to investigate it, that led me into uh, a certain area of inquiry, primarily having to do with um, studies done by economists, very quantitative studies, and led me into discussion of randomized studies and non-randomized ones, and which to believe, and so on. And I came out thinking that we really hadn't proved that uh, microcredit re- directly reduces poverty within a couple years. There's also this notion of development as freedom, which is uh, most associated with the writings of Amartya Sen, who wrote a book by that name. And Amartya Sen says that, you know, just thinking about development as higher income is really too narrow. What development really is, is about having more control in one's life. And there are many different kinds of freedom, many sources of freedom. One certainly is having higher income, but also having the right to vote, uh, living in a, a society where both genders have the same amount of power, uh, and so on. And a lot of these uh, freedoms reinforce each other. So, as he famously pointed out, the freedom of the press in India helped prevent a famine in the 1960s, whereas the lack of freedom in the press may have contributed to a huge famine in China, also in the 1960s. So, in the context of microfinance, this lead, this frame leads us to ask, well, does microfinance enhance freedom? Does it empower people? And that leads to a more anthropological literature, you know, people who have spent months or years living with people doing microfinance, trying to assess whether those who used it uh, got more control over their lives. And certainly there are stories of women who are empowered through microcredit. On the other hand, it also leads to the question of when is an interest rate too high? When is microcredit usury? When is microcredit, as we talked about earlier, actually coercing people rather than empowering them? So there's a discussion in, in the book about that. And I come away feeling much more confident that micro savings is going to be empowering the microcredit because of the obvious risks of getting people into too much debt. The third and last conception is development as industrial transformation. And this is associated most with Joseph Schumpeter, who coined the term creative destruction. And this is, this is the idea that the essence of development is not just numerically rising income, but fundamental perpetual transformation of society. 
all aspects of society, economics, politics, social. And if you see this as the essence of development, and certainly there's a strong case to be made that for Nigeria to become the United States, it has to undergo decades of a very thorough growing process of transformation. Then the question is, does microfinance contribute to it? And I don't think that microcredits or, or, or the other financial services under my, the heading of microfinance uh, turn the clients into agents of Schumpeterian transformation, right? They're not going to go found Google or, or General Motors and just change how the economy works through their actions. But I do think there's some case to be made that the microfinance industry is itself an example of, of constructive transformation. If you were creating a new industry or extending an existing industry to serve a giant segment of the population that wasn't served before, that enriches the economic fabric of the country and is, in my view, a kind of development. Now, if we thought that microcredit was as bad for people as cigarettes, we wouldn't celebrate that any more than we would celebrate the growth of the cigarette industry. But as we've already discussed, I think, especially if there's a de-emphasis of microcredit, I think we can, uh, we, there are reasons to believe that microfinance uh, does serve poor people in the long run, and therefore that it's a good thing if we can expand the industry to provide those services to poor people safely. I think we have time for one more question. So I'd like to ask what you think the right takeaway is from the, uh, not to be overdramatic, but the rise and fall of uh, microfinance in in, on, on sort of the international development stage, um, like, for example, is the takeaway, uh, we shouldn't get too excited about something until there are randomized controlled trials, uh, or would you pick a different uh, takeaway? Sure. I'm torn. On the one hand, there's, there's the easy lesson that you kind of just suggested, that, that the uh, excitement got ahead of the evidence, and as a result, a lot of money was wasted, and maybe even people may even have been hurt because of the overly rapid growth of microcredit in some countries. I, 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 so that is a natural lesson, and I think it's a valid lesson. I, I say that, I offer it though with a lot of humility because I think of myself as a critic rather than a playwright. Someone who kibitzes from the sidelines rather than actually gets, rolls up his sleeve and gets something done in the real world. Right. And I know that often if you want to get something done in the real world, you can't be too careful. Sometimes you just have to barrel ahead, and it's never going to be perfect. And I do have to kind of, you know, acknowledge that Muhammad Yunus, even though he probably overestimated the, the benefits of his work, did change the world and did create a movement that I think uh, is increasingly constructive because it has learned the lessons of, of these bubbles uh, and, and slowly absorbed the messages of the randomized trials. Improving financial services for poor people is a good thing, and I don't know that we would be as far along as we are now globally if it hadn't been for the sort of headstrong work of, of the likes of Muhammad Yunus. So it's a mixed lesson. Sometimes, you know, you just have to, the change makers can't, if we're too careful, we won't make change. All right. Well, we are just out of time for this section of the podcast. So I will wrap things up and we'll move on to the Rationally Speaking pick. Welcome back. Every episode, we ask our guest to introduce the Rationally Speaking pick. That's a book or website or movie or something else that tickles his or her rational fancy. 
David, what's your pick for this episode? My pick is a book called The Origins of Political Order by Francis Fukuyama, who is a, a very famous uh, political scientist. You might have heard of him as the originator of the phrase, the end of end history. End of history, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's, it's commonly pointed out now that history hasn't ended since he wrote that paper, but he really is a fantastic analyst and writer. And this book is, is a, it's a magnum opus, or part one of a magnum opus. It provides a predominantly political history of India, China, Europe, and then uh, the United States once it came along. And it's a sort of comparative history of these regions, I guess the Middle East as well, up through 1800. And it really helped me appreciate what makes China different from India and what makes China today so much like China of 2,000 years ago. Mm. Uh, continuities over time are really quite extraordinary. So it's one of the books I've read recently that has most helped me understand the world. That is a great teaser. Excellent. Well, we'll put a link to that, as well as to your own book, Due Diligence, up on the podcast website. And David, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure, too. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.